Hello and welcome to the What the Flick podcast. It is beginning to look and sound a lot like Christmas. It is gloomy in LA. <laughs> yeah, we don't get snow, but you know, we have mild overcast. That's when you know it's holiday magic time. There are clouds. Um, I'm Christy. I'm Alonzo. I'm also Alonzo. <laughs> uh, I'm Ben. Alonzo and I are sharing a mic. So there might be a brief moment where the normal rapidity of our clever interjection is delayed by half a second. <laughs> our wacky banter. It's in our brains, though, I promise. So um, we have gotten to the end of the year here. This is our last episode of 2018. And so we are hitting those last few big awards wannabes. And uh, it's kind of a mixed bag today. And the most mixed of all I think we're going to be is on this first film, which is Vice. This is a very polarizing movie. And it has polarized the three of us, I can tell, just by looking at what our numbers are here. Um, I, uh, I will describe Vice. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. Christian Bale is Dick Cheney. He was the vice president of the United States, and uh, he's a truly evil dude. And Adam McKay tells his story in a very similar structure to the way he crafted the big short, right? So he is doing a lot of fourth wall breaking, a lot of narrative gimmickry, and it's very playful, and it's, you know, it's, it's trying to toy with a story that is inherently pretty straightforward, which is that Dick Cheney was power hungry and evil yeah and that's that's kind of where the movie falls apart for me which is i think we all needed you know the graphs and the goofiness to understand the housing bubble collapse because the credit default swaps are not a thing that i think the average american could understand and wrap their head around i certainly couldn't but i think that cheney's brand of evil is so obvious and well documented it was kind of like well this movie isn't telling me anything i don't know and it's telling it to me with all these bells and whistles. And so it, it just sort of – I didn't quite understand what the point of it was because I felt like he was he was taking us down a very familiar road but with lots of arrows and, you know, uh, like like the ways voice that wouldn't shut up. I'm, trying yeah. to, I'm, I'm straining a metaphor here. Uh, but obviously Ben dug this movie. So uh, what worked for you about this? Nearly everything except the last 15 minutes or so where I thought it ended uh, too quickly. But I don't want to start with what was wrong with it. Uh, I think there was a lot right with it. I am not – I have maybe uh, from years of uh, covering incredibly important political stories, uh, repeating a story about sort of gross government misconduct and more than misconduct, disinterest in governing and disinterest in the truth – which we are, of course, experiencing right now, but a ungoverning, which is what Dick Cheney wanted, right? I mean, ungoverning in the sense of the uh, uh, unitary executive authority, which I'm not saying it quite right, but uh, um, which is sort of the uh, defining characteristic of the Bush-Cheney administration. The undemocracy. Right, the undemocracy of it. So uh, retelling that story in detail, I want told again and again and again because people don't know it. Um, so we, yeah. we sitting at this table know it, and I, uh, I'm going to sound like an ass here, but and I, I run in circles of people <laughs> who know it, but I'm not knocking the people who don't know it because people who don't know it have other interesting lives and did other things and thought, oh, government, the, the Cheney Bush guys, they seem crazy and they seem like liars and they stop there. So I think it's a history worth retelling, and I think Adam McKay – and Christian Bale and Sam Rockwell have have retold it, in, and 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 uh, Steve Carell have, have retold it in in very engaging fashion. I like laughed a lot and got angry a lot. Yeah, I'm not suggesting the story is not worth telling. I mean, it certainly is, and it's not you know like it's ancient history by any means. And you see those same strains of like absolute disregard for process and structure now. I mean, the day we're recording this, we are on the verge of an eco- of a government shutdown. You know, everything is falling apart in our country right now as, as we're taping this. And so it's not necessarily irrelevant. 
I don't dispute the worth of the story and the performances are great and Christian Bale is great and Steve Carell as Rummy is great and Amy Adams as this Lady Macbeth figure as Lynn Cheney is great. I don't deny that. I just, I wish they had let the inherent drama of the story play out for itself in a more straightforward way. So you wanted inherent vice. (laughs) (laughs) But to your point though, I don't know if the people who don't know this story are going to see this movie and if they do, great. But I mean, and I'm not even all that crazy about the performances. Like, I mean, Bale is sort of in the same corner as Ryan Gosling in First Man and that he is playing somebody with no discernible personality. And that's really hard to convey on screen. And, and, And the point of Cheney is his soullessness, I suppose. And so, you know, the best that Bale can do is to be the greatest blank he can. Um... Amy Adams is fine. I felt like I, her her Lady Macbeth in um, The Master was better. And Sam Rockwell is fine, but I felt like his W in uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was better. So and Josh Brolin's W is better. That true. Oh, that I, too also. I thought I, I think Josh Brolin's W is excellent. I think this is the best W that has ever been done uh, on Saturday Night Live or in a performance. I thought it was sensational. Well, how so? Because he's getting it right, or he's he getting it. something else different. No, he got he got the uh, vapidity. I've already done rapidity. <laughs> he, he got the vapidity exactly right, like that, and the affableness right, and um, and I think that's that's sort of hard to do. Is because he wasn't he didn't totally make him into a character to be mocked. It sort of felt like what I think was part of McKay's uh, effort here that worked less well, I thought, than other points, that 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 Bush is what you get when uh, consumerism, which is an inevitability of corporatism, merges together to crank out a candidate. And you get uh, the definition of an empty suit, but it's still a suit that people have to vote for. So it has to be friendly and it has to eat chicken the right way. (laughs) And it has to even be when he's drunk, be nice. Like even when there's a scene where when Cheney is sort of first exposed to him uh, while he's in Congress and he's in he's talking to George H.W. Bush and H.W. is talking about, oh, you know, we got to we got we're hoping for good things for my son, Jeb, you know, we'll be hearing from him. And then George W. walks in and he's drunk and he's slipping and he's making a scene at this fancy party and everybody's like, oh. That's Junior, you know, <laughs> what a jerk failure he is in 1984. Um, so I thought that that sort of again, I thought both Cheney and Bush were were given a degree of of humanity uh, by McKay and by their performances, but that didn't take away from their monstrousness. Right, mostly Cheney's there, and I think that's hard to do. Like you know, they managed to convey that Cheney loves his daughters. Right, clearly, legitimately, he's a good dad. Uh, and but he, the, but he, so, oops, sorry, but he still managed to stab Mary in the back when it, when it helped uh, the other Liz, you know, uh, in her in her campaign. And I, I would have liked more about what a monster Liz Cheney is because she is one. Yeah, that's a whole. That's a that's a no. That's but that was again another layer to his like like. Then at this moment, he'd established himself as a righteous father, right, and as righteous as you can be in that party at that time, you know, by saying, look, my daughter's gay and I'm not going to campaign. I'm not going to talk about gay marriage. And, you know, and Bush is like, hey, man, we'll just take that one off your plate, man. That's great. Great. No problem. Um, So, uh, yeah, but then at that moment where he gives, where he then changes back because they think it'll help Liz win a a house seat in Wyoming, um, uh, again, you're sort of reminded of it, but each moment is a father torn between Two daughters, but yet while you have that sort of uh, humanity and that those those basic identifiable human instincts, which are really the only ones Dick Cheney has, it still somehow manages to create a movie where you never have that moment of like, oh man, but you know, you know, Stalin, he was fun at a party, you know, <laughs> it was a great joke teller. I'm not sure this movie really holds Cheney's feet to the fire though for his monstrousness, and and a lot of that has to do with the playfulness of the structure and the the self-awareness of it all. And I'm not saying you can't have a satire that is light on its feet and still make some really pointed observations about, you know, a, a real life person, but this just felt like it was having too much fun with the monster to really let the full teeth bear themselves. That's my biggest criticism of it is okay. that maybe we're too, we're not enough removed from it. I mean, they were still in office uh, 10 years ago today at the end of 2018. Uh, uh, so they were still in office at the end of 2008. 
And we are finding out that what we thought, you know, was the worst possible right-wing administration we could have wasn't, which nope. is what's caused this <laughs> peculiar uh, and inevitable, because as humans, we're so simple in our assessment of things. You're either a winner or a loser, and at any time anyone is a bigger loser than you, then you become a winner, in a sense, right? So George Bush is having this rebirth, not just among some – a rebirth mostly among Democrats who, like, give him – I think I saw one poll. I know he was over 40. I think he was over 50 in approval rating, which is obviously just a – fallout of a reaction to Donald Trump, but you are allowed to dislike both. Um, I will say also that the, the narrative device, the whole voiceover structure beyond the fact that it's just handholding from a very superficial perspective, who it ends up being, what perspective that ends up being Mm. felt like such a, an eye rolling kind of gimmick, the way that it pulls the rug out from underneath you is to, it's not nearly as amusingly clever as it thinks it is. Yeah, definitely. That, that, that is a switcheroo that's sort of like, uh, Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad that it, it, it gave us Jesse Plemons in the movie. You know, mm-hmm. he, I, I, I always like seeing him in stuff. But uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't land the way I think that the filmmakers intended. Also, I never forgot every time Tyler Perry came on as Colin Powell, I felt like I was watching Medea. Like Medea goes to oh. Washington. No, 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 because he's got like the same kind of glasses on. There's like a similar <laughs> kind of nerdiness about but, his per- his but, performance. But I, he is so good in other people's movies. He is, but not I, this one. I thought he was. I I thought he was fine in this one. It's still great in Gone Girl, but uh, it's interesting how like the only sane people in the room are are are, are him and to an extent Condoleezza yeah. Rise, but ultimately they just don't they they get steamrolled, you know. Yeah, and they don't, and of course, but insignificantly they don't they don't stand up. They both recognize, whoa, this is Dick Cheney without the president's authority, given the military the right to shoot down incoming aircraft, which again might have been the right decision, but. But to Cheney, it was a it was a test of executive power, mm-hmm. right? And he certainly didn't want to he certainly want to put that burden on W. Um, so I think it helped me, and I think I'm gonna I think we should betray this because I think it will help people and is not very significant. But I, as soon as I heard the voice of the narrator. Like, did you know who it was right away? Uh, no. So I was like, I, that's somebody. I know who that is. I know that his voice is so incredibly familiar with me, so I looked it up. So two minutes into the movie, I knew who the narrator was. But so the, you don't know what his role is. No, but then you see him. Right, he, but then you don't know where he comes in to play. No, I got it. But the mere fact that you already knew it was this sort of character not fully in any way connected mm-hmm. to what's happening helped because I, what I'm getting at is I sort of agree that then that payoff – like I remember thinking at that payoff, I'm like, wow! If I, if this were the moment where I had discovered that, and then there's this, I'd be like, oh, all right, thanks. So, uh, <laughs> but that's part of what I didn't like about the conclusion of the film. And I would say, of of all of the little structural tricks it plays, you know, and and the worst of all is running the credits halfway through the movie, which is something they did in the Simpsons movie, which is not that funny. Um, I will say the one that does work is... You didn't like that? No. I, I loved it. I thought that was funny. I, I loved it. No, I thought that was lame. Yeah, I thought that was lame because I've seen it before. But um, the the Shakespeare scene, is that's all I will say. The Shakespeare scene really, really worked for me because it felt like it was germane drink to who these characters are. I, I loved Alfred Molina as the waiter. I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. I, I did. And the Shakespeare scene is great because it's kind of the movie that you wished it were, <laughs> but these are the people we're dealing with and they don't earn a Shakespeare <laughs> kind of backstory or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, yes, obviously I'm on board for what this movie is saying and often for how it's saying it, but, I, but it just, to me, felt like... Uh, yeah, it is a little too soon, and it just so much of it, I think, is so immediately accessible for a lot of people, you know, as opposed to something like the financial crisis where you need the hand-holding. So, uh, yeah, I just was kind of ultimately put off by it. Although it's funny when watching the footage from George H.W. Bush's funeral, you know, they're all there in the first couple of rows. Ben's messing with the mic in case you're wondering what that sound is. Oh, sorry. Um, it's okay. So, um, yeah, you're, they're all there, and, and Dick and... Lynn Cheney are, you know, sitting in like the second row of, of the pews of the cathedral there where they had the, the funeral. I'm thinking like, I wonder if someone's gotten him a screener of Vice. I wonder what he thinks about this movie. Well, what's interesting is that I think you could be Dick Cheney and watch this movie and think, yeah, that's about right. I did that. I, I did that. <laughs> and I'm and, and, and no question. And this will maybe 
maybe this is a reason to dislike it, uh, perhaps, but I, I was telling Cenk about this at uh, Cenk Uger, the host of the Young Turks, and I said, I think you've got to see Vice because there are, in a way, you will admire him, right? There is, a <clears throat> there is admiration for seeing an opportunity, executing it perfectly. Um, uh, now, it's an awful, terrible opportunity that expanded presidential powers in a reckless way that Barack Obama didn't roll back, but continued that expansion on. I mean, that's the danger is that you, that you, what he created was a, a desperate need to have a sane person in that office. And right away, we've seen what happens when there isn't. So, uh, but like, you're like, wow, this guy is smart. This guy is, uh, uh, sees the entire game, sees the whole field. You know, he is the quarterback who, who, uh, the expression that announcers use in football now, as if it's been around forever, they go, he threw him open. Like uh-huh. the receiver wasn't open, but the throw was so good that he appeared to be open. And they say it like people have been saying this since 1951, but it showed up in October of this year. You know, um, Alonzo uh, knew that. Right. And uh, <laughs> uh, and Dick Cheney uh, threw stuff open, you know, um, and and I had a degree of, uh, you know, strictly, uh, you know, I guess this is what insiders, what makes people insiders like they're like, oh, Dick Cheney, he's just he saw a way to play the game right. And he played it right. But, you know, of course, it's not a game and 600,000 Iraqis are dead. But the early images of young Dick Cheney would in no way suggest that he had that in him. No, that's, again, something I liked about it, yeah. right? right. We, so we, he, but it seems like Lynn Cheney creates him almost, like pushes him to be the man he's going to be. Like he didn't have that in him. He wanted to just be a drunk layabout in Wyoming, like just a good old boy hanging that, out, drinking and smoking. Right, I, and I imagine that's true. I mean, I, I, know, I don't think anybody saw this in Dick Cheney early on. Yeah. At all, and especially the, the you know the scene, the early scene of him running for his first for a seat in the House that he ran in 1980. I think he was elected when Reagan uh, came into office. Maybe maybe it was 78. Maybe he was elected in 78. Um, but he's the worst candidate ever. <laughs> um, and then she turns out to be pretty good. But there's also right. some sexism there. But she can't run. It has to be him. Right. I mean, the one interesting idea that I think that we have it has is the notion that Lynn Cheney is the one who actually had ambitions. And she knew exactly what the limitations of society were as far as letting her go there. And so she had to, you know, she basically does to Dick Cheney what Dick Cheney does to Bush, which is like, well, here's an empty shell I can mm-hmm. inhabit. Um, you know, and, and so, and, and I think that's, that's indicative of an entire generation of women who were smart and ambitious and wanted to accomplish things and knew that there were ro- all these roadblocks. And so it was just easier to, like, find a patsy to marry and have him be the vessel by which her, you know, ideas and ambitions could be idealized. And I would have – I think if the movie had been about her in a way, it might have been more interesting. But, like, that's an idea we get early on and then it's kind of abandoned. Second – the, the second lady, second. That could be her movie next time. So I'm saying a four. I'm I'm very mixed on this. I enjoyed things about it, but mostly did not. What about you guys? Yeah, I, I gave it a four also. I, I, I you know you can't help but be impressed with with the some of the technique and, and some of the performances, but I just ultimately didn't feel like it added up to enough. Uh, both of you are horribly mistaken on this one, which is rare because you're far smarter than I am. But uh, I gave it a 7.3. There are certainly flaws, but I think it's uh, worth seeing, and it is engaging. I mean, it makes a movie about, you know, the the the, the movie that needs to be made about Dick Cheney is is Destroyer, right? Is the movie we'll be reviewing uh, shortly, the Nicole Kidman movie. But that is a uh, which we'll talk about. But that is a dark, bleak, punishing movie, and I don't know that. I don't know that, again, you want people to go see a Dick Cheney movie. The dark, bleak, punishing Dick Cheney movie is probably not uh, going to do as well as Vice. I don't know if Vice will do well, but I, I thought it was really engaging. I look forward to Adam McKay's Trump movie in 2023. Oh, yes. yeah. All right, so our number is a 5.1. It's at 66% on the tomato meter. Let's move on to, while we're talking about real-life people, on the basis of sex, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Alonzo. Uh, okay, so this is a biopic. <laughs> With a capital B. Boy, is it a biopic. <laughs> down to the down to the swelling music and the... It's, it's, it's kind of a Mad Lib biopic. <laughs> it just happens to be about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and about her... Um, her years in law school where, uh, and she talks about, if you saw that, if you saw the documentary RBG, you don't need to see this movie. And if you want to see this movie, you should just go watch RBG instead. Uh, but she talks in that film about the women, like being in a class of, there are like nine women in her, 
class at Harvard Law. It was the first year they admitted women. And the dean basically asked each of them to stand up and explain why they were there taking a space that could have gone to a man. And uh, that's a scene. That's a that's a moment that's much more powerful when she describes it in the doc than it is as acted out here, which is kind of par for the course for pretty much everything that happens here. Um, you know, she graduates uh, at the top of her class. She uh, her husband uh, has cancer while in law school, so she's attending his classes and doing his papers as well as her own. And um, once they graduate, they go to New York. She cannot get a job at any law firm because she's a woman. And, uh, you know, just ridiculous, arbitrary things that get thrown in her way. So instead, she becomes a professor uh, and study, you know, specializing in cases about gender discrimination, which really wasn't taken seriously because there were all these precedents where they basically decided, no, it was fine for the law to treat men and women differently because, you know, thousands of years of history and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but something comes up finally where it's a case where a man is the object of gender discrimination. It's a tax case um, for a single man who's taking care of his mother and doesn't get to take a provider deduction. So she gets her buddies at the ACLU to back her on taking that court, that case to court. And, um, you know, that becomes an opportunity for some speeches. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's Felicity Jones, an actress who has yet to wow me. Uh, as you didn't like her in Rogue One? No, I did not. <laughs> Playing one of our greatest living jurists. And uh, Army Hammer as her husband, who... Um, is a lot blonder than the real Martin uh, Ginsburg. I'll just say that much. Anyway, I, th- yeah, this kind of left me cold, especially because, I mean, I'm sure, you know, as, as you've mentioned about Welcome to Marwin, you know, you have this great documentary, like, why do you need this cruddy fictional version? We had the we had a really interesting documentary this year about this very subject. A few months ago. And, uh, yeah, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg just recently had a couple of nodules removed from her lungs. Yes, which apparently they only found because she broke her ribs so you know things work out yes i'm 85 years old malignant nodules so uh, she's she's resting comfortably she is fine so yeah this is very hands-off and very polite and does not really reveal a whole lot of true character about anybody here as you say yes the documentary is so much more enlightening so much more moving so much more entertaining and uh and Felicity Jones's accent really wavers. Like sometimes she's super Brooklyn-y. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes she's almost British because she is. Yeah. And and she gets to wear the same shade of light blue that she always wears in every movie. <laughs> like throughout the entirety of the theory of everything. Oh, you're right. All she wore were these like powder powder blue like sweater sets and matching dresses, and that's what she wears here as well. It looks good with her eyes, I guess. But someone's <laughs> got to find a different way to dress her. But the result of that, it sounds like a superficial comment, but the result of it is like. All these roles kind of blend into one of these these perky young women, you know, these go getters. Yeah, they have moxie, and uh, yeah, the the one scene I really enjoyed in this movie is when Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes home from a long day and finds her husband chopping vegetables and and Mimi Leader who directed this like she holds that shot like it's a close up of Army Hammer's hands chopping up some celery and it's super fast like he's really good at it I'm like ooh Army Hammer come to my house and chop up some vegetables for me that was really exciting but like he doesn't get to do a whole lot beyond be supportive loving I mean, husband and if, if this movie had any like had a subversive bone in its body they would sort of play with the notion that he is playing the supportive wife mm-hmm. in this movie which they don't really lean into all that much and you know I, like this just felt so like this felt like a movie that could have been about almost anybody just because of the way it's structured the the early years of disappointment the the, the moment to shine the the moment where it seems like it's all going to go off the rails the big speech at the end the the conflicts at home in this case it's with her, her daughter who feels like she's not radical enough um it just all the beats feel right out of every sort of inspirational 1970s tv movie about a great american and it's also given that the inherent story is really interesting like the actual like legal story at oh. work here is fascinating it is depicted in the most boring way like the pacing is so slack and it's just it's almost monotonous and there's no real sense of build-up or tension to those big moments as you say and so when they come it's like oh yeah there's the big speech it uh it sounds like it just needed more queen songs earlier (laughs) in the movie less gay sex more queen songs (laughs) she does have a bit of a dental prosthetic (laughs) 
Oh, does she? Well, because, you know, because Ginsburg has that, like, her front teeth come out a little bit. And I think that Felicity Jones is, is wearing something. But she she handles it in her mouth much better than Rami Malek does. Yes. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's very safe. It's it's not bad. No. It's it, just there. It it's is, kind of blocked. It, it is, you know, when when in, in college theater class and they tell you about the well-made play, <laughs> you know, which is like, yes, it is, it is competent, it is structurally sound, and it does what it's supposed to do, but it doesn't dazzle you in any way this is that kind of movie and it's like <sighs> rbg deserves better and i think you know I, I i'm serious about this i said it earlier this year i think there needs to be like a five-year moratorium on <laughs> biopics like and, like everybody needs to regroup and figure out how to do these more interestingly um otherwise they're just all sort of variants of walk hard <laughs> well it's funny you mentioned that because there was a story in rolling stone i want to say david is it david fear who writes for rolling stone he did a look back at walk hard 10 years later i saw and that yeah. how nobody did a music biopic in the traditional you know paint by numbers way for years after walk hard because they'd all been like sufficiently chastened <laughs> and then clearly brian singer didn't see walk hard because True. bohemian rhapsody yeah. is walk hard <laughs> i know like i remember at the beginning of get on up when you know like it starts with him backstage and old and i thought oh no no no, no. <laughs> but then luckily they're like jumping back and forth in time a lot and they didn't do that and then nobody saw that movie which annoyed me because i loved that but they mentioned get on up as a good example of a, a film that plays with structure of a non-walk hard oh good yes. good good so okay. it's in there so my number is a 5.2 and that even feels like maybe it's a little bit high for me it's just it's sort of it's fine yeah i gave it a straight up five it's like this is a well-intentioned film about an important subject Mm -hmm. but it's whatever and i will say that the last image um will make you wish that you had seen a different film the last image (laughs) of the whole thing is where like you know they were so pumped to get that that image Mm. it's like great this makes your movie look even worse good job (laughs) (laughs) all right so our numbers are 5.1 it's 74 percent on the tomato meter i suspect that a lot of that is just like fine two and a half star reviews it was okay yes a really good movie though about more real life people that does not necessarily adhere to the biopic structure and tone and all that is Stan and Ollie, Alonzo. Yes. Uh, I think this is a movie that, again, as we've seen with with movies about real people that wisely focus on a specific segment, uh, even if it's like you know a day, a week, a month in the life of, rather than trying to get the whole thing in there. Um, this is about Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. We get a, a brief sort of prelude at their peak um, uh, when they are on the, on the Hal Roach studio lot filming way out west. But then we jump forward to the 50s where they're on a tour of England. England. Their movie career is pretty much over, although Stan is trying desperately to get his Robin Hood script produced. And there's a producer in London who's shown some interest, so they're going on this tour of English music halls to sort of rekindle interest in Laurel and Hardy. Um, Oliver is older and fat, and his knee is messed up, and but he's still game and trying to get out there. And so the movie takes us through their relationship, their each of their relationships with their wives, who are played by Nina Arianda and Shirley Henderson, who are also great. And um, this is a movie that could have gone south in so many ways uh, and doesn't. Like, it's really smart about approaching the two of these guys as people and what their relationship was like and, and how they worked together and how they disappointed each other. Um, the moments where Steve Coogan and John C. Riley have to recreate classic Laurel and Hardy moments... I was holding my breath because I thought that was going to be a disaster, but they do it perfectly. They they nail the comic timing and the the physical the the physicality of these guys. I was really impressed by Stan and Ollie. I think it's quite lovely. Ben, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies in a while. Um, it was great. Um, it was not great from start to finish for me. It was great like twelve minutes in to finish. Like I, the, what happens in the beginning? Alonzo's trepidation at the beginning, I felt very uh, acutely. You know, in that opening scene, which is set in nineteen thirty-seven, and they're making way out west, and Danny Houston's playing Hal Roach, and uh, and then they're doing a little Laurel and Hardy dance, and I, I just thought, oh man, this is going to make everyone hate Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> Um, because it's not funny and they don't even seem talented to me. Like it doesn't even seem like it's the problem of, you know, comedy is so generational, right? I mean, I guarantee that there are, you know, funny 20 year olds today who know they're supposed to like Lenny Bruce, but think, 
Ain't that funny, you know? <laughs> Bill Cosby, forget the after, but like doesn't it doesn't consistently Ernie Kovacs, right? Right, doesn't translate. Richard Pryor, right? Well, Richard Pryor may be an <laughs> exception to the rule. There are some there are some people who, and and obviously plenty of people today still love those people. So, but that said, you know, I, I always wonder, like, when my daughter is forty five years old, and again, I'm going to use someone I can't apparently I cannot get out of people who've had their career turned upside down. But I always use the example, like, when my daughter is forty five years old and she listens to Chris Rock and Louis C.K., who to me were the two funniest people really I'd ever heard, right? And I thought, is she going to think, ugh, dad? You know, these guys are horrible, right? Or have we reached a moment where humor can be so honest, which was a restriction for everybody else up until about now, or 1990 anyway, that maybe starting with the Jerry Seinfeld generation of comedians, we entered it. I would say up until Lenny Bruce, actually. Sure, maybe up until, but even, even, uh, yes, but yes, that's a fair point. But certainly as we, as we grew and we were able to curse and, you know, George Carlin, obviously, but as as now every comedian has embraced that, those were exceptions, outliers prior and, and, uh, uh, and Bruce and, and some others. So the, um, that maybe comedy doesn't translate. So in the beginning, I was like, "Oh, this is not translating." And then, and then the story took over, uh, and the story is fantastic, and 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 it's beautiful. It's all set, and as you say, Alonzo, in, in 1953, they cheated a little bit because I now was then determined to see how much of this was true, and it's enough true. Most of the stuff with the British getting the movie made, um, what movie were they making? Robin Hood. Trying to make Robin Hood. Most of that was in 1947, not 53, but it was on a trip to England. It was just one of their earlier tours, and then they went back in 52. So they they fiddled, but not in a meaningful way. You're getting a, a essential truth of the Stan Laurel-Oliver Hardy relationship, and 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 the movie is so beautiful and so it's such a feel good story in a way that makes you feel good and not manipulated um so then when they start doing this st- rather than the movie routines but the st- on stage routines because that's what they're doing live performances in England i mean in uh in Europe uh that's much much better to me than i than i or i became less worried about that and more just like oh what a great every every i mean i'll say this and i'll say it again later and then i'll shut up but (laughs) every tcm fan who cares at all about laurel and Hardy uh, has to see stan and ollie well i was going to ask you how much about laurel and Hardy did you know prior to the film like were were you really really well versed in them because of your tcm background i'm well versed in, in a lot of what happens in many of the movies and and that their partnership was long and fruitful but i mean some of the things i don't even want to betray right. um uh, no i didn't know uh, i mean the, and it is you know the movie also really explores you know how you know it explores why rock bands break up mm-hmm. you know that a, a long-term creative partnership is really hard especially when you're as a long-term creative partnership as writing partners is very hard a long-term creative partnership where you're also the performers right and you're the ones who go out on stage and you're the ones who receive the adulation and interact with the fans and you put everything on the line um uh, that uh, is so hard to maintain and so hard to con- and so that and it explores that this movie explores that in great detail it may be the definitive movie about creative partnerships the thing that you like about it that, you, that it's feel good I actually found it quite melancholy and that's what I liked about it that there is this constant sensation this underpinning of like they're going to fall apart and this thing that they have done for so well that is like in the fiber of their DNA by now like it can't last and you know it can't last and it's sad because of that because it's such a, a huge loss of identity both individually and as a team so it's, it is feel good when they're together when they're firing on all cylinders it's a blast to watch and these guys do get the, the lovely subtle nuances of the intricacy of the comedy and the details of the comedy but you just know that it, it's, it's not going to last forever and how heartbreaking that is for them both yeah I mean definitely they, they're older and, and even the people who are loving them on stage can't help saying things to them like I can't believe you're still doing these <laughs> routines you know and so there is that sense of like these are guys who have who their prime is is long past but they're still trying to sort of eke out one last moment of all this in a way it actually it's it was less melancholy than actually watching their last film together the big noise which is really not good is and it, not? it is not and they 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 register as old mm-hmm. like old and over it and past it and this movie which is actually set after that movie 
came out kind of gave them a sort of late in life resurgence for me, which I, 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 could, I thought, okay, well, maybe if you went and saw them on stage, you know, in England, you know, you would see them still being more like they, they were at their prime. And um, this is one of Coogan's best performances. John C. Riley, I just am so loving this year. Like, I'm kind of dreading having to go see Holmes and Watson the day after Christmas because they didn't even show it to the press, so that's never a good sign. But between this and the Sisters Brothers and even, like, Ralph Breaks the Internet, I just think he's he's on a roll. He is. Um, I, uh, I think it was both. Uh, it's not a feel-good movie. I mean, you. that's why I, I, think, I hope I left enough pause. Okay. It makes you feel good okay. about humanity, about friendship, about loyalty, about people, about the what the the crap that people who really care about each other are willing to endure to make sure that they recognize the thing that really has value, right? Which so many people who don't in marriages, friendships that break up, like they fail to recognize at the time the beauty of the thing worth protecting. And that's what makes you feel good. It's full of melancholy, yeah. right? And even, I mean, I, I, cry, I was sobbing at the end of this movie, well, of but not, did. but not a, uh, <laughs> but not a, uh, you know, I wasn't sad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happy and, 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 yeah, I mean, you were, you're inspired in many ways. It's just, it's a really, really, really wonderful movie. It's not their last movie, by the way. Their last movie is worse. Oh. Uh, the, the, unless you, well, the, the, so I, I couldn't, cause it's got a bunch of titles, but, uh, I think Atoll, is that how you say the island when it's in yeah. a, 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 the big noise is that was, the oh, movie. that's it. It's oh, no. Cause it's called, yeah, it was called utopia in the U S but maybe that's, there was another, they, no, they had another movie called oh. the big noise, but anyway, this, but you're right. It doesn't matter. I, I, but because it's TCM, I can't let that go. The, uh, I'm not allowed to let that go. But you're right. Everything except the title. Like that was the movie's terrible, and and it's a. Uh, uh, this is a much more fitting way to sort of see these guys off. Yeah, John C. Riley is great in it. It's a very physical. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's a very physical role. It's it's a physically demanding role for them both because yeah, they do have to get all that physical comedy, all that timing, all the dance moves absolutely right, and they do do that. Uh, Steve Coogan, what he is doing is a lot more subtle and a lot more understated. You know, John C. Riley's role is physically showier, and a lot of that has to do with just the the physicality of the person that he is playing. But what Steve Coogan's doing is no less difficult. And yeah, they're lovely together. And it's hard not to think of, of all those great the trip movies when you see Steve Coogan doing a, a buddy comedy where they're on the road together. But this is very much its own thing and very much its own lovely thing. And I want to mention too um, how great Nina Arianda is in this. And when I first saw her, I was like, oh God, she's doing this big, broad Russian accent and it's going to be super one note and really obnoxious. And she steals every scene she's in and there's so much room for shading that you don't expect from this character off the top she's great uh, she and Shirley Henderson could do could yes. anchor their own buddy picture yes. <laughs> Nina Ariane I'm glad you mentioned her because that was what I yeah, and Alonzo certainly mentioned her but uh, she is a uh, her life is spent stealing scenes <laughs> she is uh you can't be a funnier actress than mm-hmm. Nina Arianda. I don't. I, I'm trying to stay away from hyperbole in life, but mm-hmm. she's a ten. <laughs> um, she is in the Amazon show Goliath, Billy mm-hmm. Bob Thornton show, Billy Bob Thornton show, which is terrific. And she steals every single mm-hmm. scene in there. She, she was on Masters of Sex. I mean, she was on Masters of Sex, but she is dynamite. I mean, mm-hmm. she's just a sensational actress, and she's great here. You asked me what I knew about. Um, yeah. And and much of what I knew about the 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 the, the partnership of, of of Laurel and Hardy came from Jerry Lewis, who was a huge Stan Laurel admirer. So, like I, you know, because Jerry talked about him so much and Cat and put him in the I think the Bellboy. He's in he's in he's in uh, yeah he's in the Bellboy. Um, uh, and he's you know there's a um, there is a um, I didn't. What you'll learn from this, this isn't betraying anything. This is true. Is that it means Stan wrote everything, everything, and, and you he was see con- him doing that. In the and film. he was constantly, constantly writing, endlessly writing, and uh, and and continued to write even after there was no chance of performing with. Uh, it's just it's beautiful. This movie's perfect. This is a perfect movie. I mean, I gave it a nine point three, yeah, but 9. I think 2. I feel I feel a nine point two. I feel like I, I mean, I could make a case that this is a ten. Would you like to give it a ten? You're welcome to. Have you given anything a ten at all this year? I don't know. I'll keep this at a nine point two. But it is a it is it is really really a beautiful film. And mm-hmm. again, every TCM fan should see this movie. Yes. Um, go ahead. Elizabeth. I'm not seeing either of them in the Bellboy, but uh, I don't know. 
know. But IMDb could be wrong. Uh, maybe he just, I, I think, maybe, you know, I haven't seen the bellboy in a while. Um, maybe he just uh, honors him in the bellboy. I thought, I thought that, that may be. Yeah, a bellboy. I mean, is, a, is essentially a silent comedy. Oh, the, so. the, the, his, the character's name is Stanley in the. In, uh, in, in the yeah. Okay, there we go. And, and sorry. <laughs> and, and, and I just now was recording. And, and Bill Richmond, uh, Lewis's creative partner, uh, essentially plays plays uh, Laurel. In the okay. in a version of them, and and then Lewis's character is named Stanley, so it's a it's a tribute to gotcha. to Laurel. We should mention also that John S. Baird directed this, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's great because it is this, this snippet of, of life, this pivotal snippet of life in, in this really well known career. And the, yeah, they're not trying to get their arms around the entirety of it, right. and yet you do feel you come away from it feeling like you have seen the entirety of, of a career and you really understand them. Yeah. I, I just think the, the, there, there was a lot this movie could have gotten wrong and it didn't. So kudos. Uh, I gave it an 8.7. I liked it a lot. I hope people go see it. I'm saying eight. It's really very good. So our number is an 8.6. It's at 90% on the tomato meter. And I, I believe it might just be New York and LA, like a quick end of the year Oscar qualifying run, I believe. And but, then more in 19. Yeah. Uh, it's great. It's great. Go see it. They're both uh, sensational in it. Okay, let's finish up. Let's talk about Destroyer, um, the latest with Nicole Kidman, who is also kind of everywhere. There are a bunch of actors this week who are kind of everywhere between Steve Carell and John C. Riley, and uh, now Nicole Kidman, who was also in Aquaman last week. She's Queen Atlanta. But uh, here she is uh, the queen of nothing in Destroyer. Ben, what's it about? I uh, am pretty certain I'm going to go through my whole life without seeing Aquaman. And... Uh, I think I'm going to be okay. It's two and a half hours long. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What I, that's what I saw. I was like, well, you know, I didn't get to see it in time to review it. And I'm like, well, I'll see it at some point. And then I saw it was two and a half hours. And I'm like, no, I don't think I will. I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening. You're um, okay. You're fine. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, Destroyer, uh, you guys will correct me where I'm wrong here. I haven't seen it in a while. But, uh, but it made an impact. I, I, I and had an initial, I'm going to describe in a sec, but I had an initial reaction of, uh, of not uh, liking it very much. And then found myself talking about it for 24 hours, like, and I thought, really, well, yeah, like, and so I was like, well, maybe I, maybe I liked it more than I realized. Who are you talking about? With? Was it like a like a? I saw it at a festival, so there was, okay, you know, I, I mean, there were movie conversations happening. I wasn't like approaching strangers and saying, let me tell you about in the middle of the Nicole Kidman and Destroyer. It's my all night marathon of talking about Destroyer. Were you uh, at Telluride when you saw yeah, it? Yeah, I saw it at Telluride. Okay. So this is Erin uh, Bell is her name. She uh, she's a detective. We learn right in the beginning of the movie. And we learn right away, uh, based on the circumstances of our introduction to her, that things are not good in uh, Detective Bell's life. Um, And the movie is then her search told partly, told a great deal in flashback um, and uh, contemporaneously of uh, of searching uh, for former associates that she had when she was an undercover officer. She's now a detective. She had been an undercover officer, and the story is sort of told in flashback of how she got to this awful point in her life, which we witnessed there sort of at the at the beginning of the film, and you try to piece together with her what happened. But it kind of hops around in time, too. It, yeah, it moves. It, it, is, it hops all over the place in time as we go from, fla- we go from, from, from long, long, long flashback scenes uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to where she is now during this search for to find a guy who she had worked who had been involved in her undercover operation before right there's a a a job that goes bad and she's in the middle of it and she uh, has to put together the pieces to figure out how to reconcile how that ruined who she is now that's right and you know she's ruined from the very beginning because this is a very showy nicole kidman role not unlike you know the the well, no, or like the prosthetic nose in, in the hours. You know, this is like right, but Virginia I thought, Woolf in the hours. I think that there's, to some extent, there's, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, what's her name for Coke Klein? What's the. From what? From Monster. Charlie Theron. Theron from, uh, uh, from Monster, right? The same sort of like you're hit right at the beginning of this is a, a very, very glamorous, very talented actress. Uh, looking incredibly unglamorous in a very gritty movie. Halle Berry in Monster's Ball. Yeah, although I, same kind of thing. Yeah, to, yeah. To me, I still you, I couldn't you can't get away from her beauty and that still even despite yeah. yes, but the same kind of role. But uh, um, but this movie is and why I initially reacted poorly uh, to it and why I still is my ultimate criticism of it is that it is unrelentingly punishing. 
I was going to call it relentlessly bleak. Yeah, well, we're, we're super so, close. We're, we are saying the same thing. It is a. It is this movie will hit you over the head and beat you down, and then when it stops, you think to you know give you a break or to extract information. It is just merely resting its arm before it lowers the hammer once again. Yeah, and it's all of two hours long. You know, it is long and it's bleak and it is rough. But having said that, there are some very strong performances here, not just from Nicole Kidman. Sebastian Stan is very good as the person she's involved with in a multitude of ways. If it weren't, yeah. if the performances weren't great and they're all yeah. great, it would be. I couldn't. I couldn't watch the movie. Mm-hmm. They are. They are great, and you do ultimately uh, uh, care uh, what's happening to her. And it has a twist, and it's nice. I mean, the twist, I think it all, it pays off, I think. Mm-hmm. It's not so much a twist, it's just a, but a... There's an aha. There's an aha moment, <laughs> and it's a, it's a good one. Um, to the time hopping. It, yeah. it sort of ties up all, all the time hopping. Um, yeah, and this is a great example of Nicole Kidman's willingness to go there and to work with challenging directors and challenging material. Karen Kusama directed this, and she doesn't really make a whole lot of movies, Karen Kusama. And um, it's a great example of how for so long Nicole Kidman could have just made, you know, really safe prestige pictures that kind of played on her beauty and her statuesque and kind of ethereal nature. But she likes to get down and dirty, you know, whether it's working with like Gus Van Sant or Lars von Trier or uh, Stanley Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut or whatever it is. Like she will choose that, the material that challenges our notion of her. And this takes that instinct to an extreme, both physically and emotionally and just the, the, things she has to do in the places she has to go with this character. And yet you're always with her. I mean, it's, it's so quiet. It's so internal. It's almost like she's going to just implode within herself. It's so, it's, it's not, it's showy, but small. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 it is. It, yeah, no, it is. It's a, it, right. It's a, it, it feels like a small movie with, but obviously these are, these are show, everybody, not just her, they are showy performances, but I mean, Tatiana Maslany is fantastic oh, yeah. in it, but I mean, everybody and Toby Kebbell is great. And Bradley Whitford has a little role that is, you know, he's Bradley, oh, yeah. Bradley Whitford can do some fun things. Um, uh, Toby Huss. I love Toby Huss. Uh, he, they're all, everybody here is really good. Um, Scoop McNary. They're all good. Um, it's, you know, the first Alonzo, the first way I felt, and I think you did too, if I'm remembering correctly, but like the first season of The Leftovers was just, you know, it was where I was just, you know, it's 10 episodes and you're like, somebody make someone laugh, <laughs> right? Somebody show that there, that there's sometimes the sun comes out and you can go to the park, you know, and crack a smile. Right, crack a smile. And so, you know, and that was 10 hours, basically, you know, 10 one-hour episodes, and that became too much for me. So this was two hours where I'm like, somebody, at some point, say something that makes someone else laugh. You know, this is a, again, I, I so, and it's tough when you have a movie that is unrelentingly depressing. I just think the bar then, you've made the bar so high that I'm, off the top of my head, I can't think of, but I mean, there are movies that work like that, right? But you, when you don't give the audience a break, for that long, you have to execute everything completely flawlessly, and I think it's too high a, too high a standard. Yeah. I left that thing like so relieved to see sunlight <laughs> and other people. That's right. Yeah. So, and yeah, there is sort of a repetitiousness to every every awful thing she has to do, whether it is in the, the present day tracking down the people who will, who will lead her to the answers that she's looking for, or it's whatever happens to her in flashback. Like she gets the living shit beat out of her yeah, and she beats the shit out of people. Yeah, she is, um, uh, but yeah. every single person she encounters, like, you know, it's going to be bad to the extent that there's almost like not a predictability to it, but a, a sameness, like a tonal sameness to it. Like, okay, here we go again. Even with Bradley Whitford, he gets to have a little bit of fun as sort of a flashy bad guy in this and he, he does that's the mo- he that brings is, some life to yeah, it yeah he does bring that is the moment of of levity but it's hard but that's gonna be bad too yeah, that's gonna, that's gonna every turn scene's bad. gonna suck so um that is the main problem i have with that that's why my number is a seven so i i really i appreciate the performance but as you say ben like i was so happy when it was over yeah um <laughs> but i did find myself talking about it and debating it uh, you know i mean we we did vice earlier and there's a you know there's a split on vice there is some split on this some people were came out of that movie and thought at least at the time in in September, that they were like, oh my god, I've seen you know the best performance that I'm going to see all year from Nicole Kidman. Some and, people yeah. loved it. And, I um, gave it a six point eight. I'm I'm right with you. I, I almost gave it a seven, and then thought because <laughs> seven is sort of a like to me if I give a, if I hit a seven, then I'm saying 
you need to see this. This is good. So I wanted to keep it like you. Sh- you can see this, but but it is uh, it's going to drag you down. Yes, our numbers are six point nine. Yeah, you, you mentioned that there was a lot of discussion about her performance when this film, I guess, was first shown at festivals or whatever. And now her name is not in the conversation right. at all. I mean, best actress possibilities this year are just insane. Yeah. There are like ten people. Who could possibly, you know, win the Oscar for Best Actress? But she seems to have, you know, fallen off a bit in terms of that level of. I think of it's just. Claim. I think it's too bleak. I think it's too bleak. Yeah. So our numbers are six point nine to seventy nine percent on the tomato meter. So let us recap real fast for you. This week's episode, we talked about Vice. We gave it a 5.1 on the basis of sex. We also gave a 5.1. Ooh, math is fun. Stan and Ollie, we gave an 8.6. And Destroyer, Ben and I just gave a 6.9. But we had a consensus on every movie except Vice. I want to <laughs> point that out, that I was at 5.1 as uh, I have a strong objection. <laughs> I filed a... Uh, uh, what do you do when you? Uh, I can't believe I'm asking you guys. Uh, <laughs> I filed an official protest with the commissioner's office. Duly noted. All right. So, uh, so yeah, it's our last week of the year. Any final thoughts as the end year and end years? The year ends, guys. Ben Alonzo. Adios, 2018. You sucked. <laughs> Not for movies, but just in general. Yeah, it was not a it was not a great year for uh, America. Or the world, <laughs> um, uh, unless you were heavily invested in the stock market, in which case, congratulations, you did great. If that's all you care about, even that's been down. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, it took a turn there uh, toward the end. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I uh, but I thought movie wise was a pretty good year. I didn't see nearly as much as uh, as you guys. I could, I decided I was going to make a list. I was going to do the top ten recommendations for IndieWire. And then I thought I'm cheating it. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't see enough. I could come up with ten, but I'm picking ten out of. 50 as opposed to 10 out of 200 like you guys. Well, we're going to do a best of episode at the beginning of next year. So if you would like to chime in with your thoughts, you know, well, obviously, yeah, you're welcome to do that. I love to chime. We'd love to have you come chime with us. Um, I agree. It's been a shitty year in a lot of ways, but it's also been a great year because I got to spend so much of it with you too. And with Matt, Matt couldn't be here today. Sadly. Um, I feel really happy about the fact that we exist in some form still, and we feel so thrilled about the love and the support and the feedback we've gotten from all you guys about the show and something new and exciting is going to happen in 2019. I know we keep teasing it, but really, truly, we are doing that, and uh, we look yeah. forward to it. Come the new year, we have some very exciting news. Very exciting news. So um, thank you all. Happy everything, merry everything, and we look forward to talking to each other and talking to you and hearing from you more in the new year. Bye. Ben, you want to say bye? No. Okay. Bye.